This is Our American Stories. And we're going to dig in and tell the story of an American entrepreneur, an internet impresario and personality. And his name is Gary Vaynerchuk, known as Gary V, an American serial entrepreneur, four-time New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and internationally recognized internet guru. First known as a leading wine critic who grew his family's wine business from three to $60 million. He's also an angel investor and advisor to Uber, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, among others. He's a regular keynote speaker at global entrepreneurship and technology conferences, and we just think the guy's story is fascinating and his advice really compelling. Like many great American story, Gary V's story starts with an immigrant family coming to the United States to pursue the American dream. I was born in, uh, in Belarus, in the former Soviet Union, and my family immigrated here when I was three years old. It was very, very difficult. We were extremely poor. As a matter of fact, <laughs> this stage is dramatically bigger than the studio apartment that me and my grandparents, parents, and great-grandparents lived in. It was difficult, mainly because great-grandma was kind of crazy, uh, um, but also because we had no cash, we didn't speak the language, grandma got mugged a weekend, and Queens, New York was not the paved streets of gold that my Russian parents thought it was going to be. It was the late 70s, it was the Carter years, my dad was a construction worker in Russia, that's what he thought he was gonna do in the US, but clearly that wasn't gonna happen. The great uncle that was gonna kinda take care of us, my dad's great uncle, while we were in Italy getting our visas changed, cause I don't know if you remember, but Russia and America weren't best friends back then, so it took a while to get here. They wanted to make sure I wasn't a spy. Um, he died, so that didn't work out um, for anybody. Um, and we came to the US and it was a struggle. This great uncle of my dad's was very well off and he owned a small liquor store in New Jersey. So that's pretty much what my dad did. He commuted from Queens, New York to Clark, New Jersey. I still make fun of him because I'm convinced that he spent more on gas than he was getting paid. And he started our lives for us. And between my dad's hard work, and I didn't know my dad until I was 14, and we'll get to that in a minute, and the fact that my mom, how do I put this smartly, is the greatest human being of all time, and instilled so much, thank you, and instilled so much self-confidence in me that it should probably be illegal, and is clearly the foundation of everything I'm going to achieve in my life, um, we start our lives. He started making money at a very young age, but his father had different plans for young Gary V. I had seven lemonade stands when I was six years old. So I had a lemonade stand franchise. How many, how many people here remember the big wheels? You remember, got it? Yeah, those were awesome. I used to drive my big wheels around Edison, New Jersey to pick up my cash like I was Tony Soprano. <laughs> it's crazy. I learned a lot of business lessons there. This one kid, Eric Conrad, his parents were divorced. I didn't understand, I was so little, I didn't understand why he would be in our neighborhood in the summer but not in the winter. He would come every summer, he was a baller. He would make his own signs. He was a hustler, I'm sure he's doing well now. And I learned my first lesson. He would, you know, I would give them all 50 cups. Cups or a quarter, it was easy math. He would steal cash. He would take some, but he sold so much more than everybody else that I never got rid of him. 
And so it's very funny what you can learn and I've used that concept you know, still to this day. So it's funny what you can learn and where I really started learning business was when I was 12 years old because when I was 12 years old, I started a massive baseball card business and I was selling $1,000 to $2,000 a weekend in the malls of New Jersey and that was tremendous. You know, I had like $10,000 cash under my bed when I was 12 and let me tell you something. When you're 12 and you have 10 G's of cash under your bed and you're not selling weed, you're doing a good job. (laughs) Very good job. So I was happy about that. That was awesome. And then I turned 14 and my dad ruined my life. He walked in, he said, you're going to work today. I said, what? I have a baseball card show. He said, no you don't. You don't mess with Russian immigrant dads. I decided I should probably go if I wanted to continue growing. Um, So... We, we, we went to the liquor store, I cried the whole drive home to the store, cried, real cry. 14, I'm, not, I'm proud, I cry, cry, devastated. Dad, how much are you gonna pay me? Two bucks an hour. I started crying much harder. <laughs> and I proceeded to spend 10 hours in a basement bagging ice and made 20 bucks for the day. Instead of going to the mall, hanging out with friends and girls and selling baseball cards. Clearly my life had taken a bad turn. And this is what I did for the next two years. It was devastating, I hated it, and my life from 14 to 16 professionally was dark. Gary's father had finally let him out of the basement when he realized a golden opportunity that would change his life forever. About 25 people came in and asked for the same thing. Camus Special Select 1990 Cabernet Sauvignon. It was the Wine Spectator Wine of the Year. And finally, you know, people coming in, we had sold out of it the prior week because it just got announced. And finally, you know, people coming in, do you have it? No, and they're leaving. And you know, the entrepreneurial DNA is like going off. I'm like, this sucks. This is not good business. I don't like this. We have like six parking spots and they're all taken up by people that can't buy something. I'm like, I'm gonna take a back order. We didn't have a back order system, but I didn't care because I was going to school on Monday. <laughs> so, guy, next guy that comes in, I'm getting a back order. Guy comes in. Sir, what's your name? You know, da-da-da, got his name, address, phone number. How much would you like? I'll take 10 cases. So I'm like, man, this guy's an alcoholic. (laughs) I was like, are you gonna drink all that? Are you having a party? He goes, no, 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 I collect wine. That was it. At that moment, I can, you know how you can, you know how like when big things happen, you can, I can literally, I remember the weird t-shirt I was wearing, I was sitting, in the middle of the store, my life changed because I sat there and said, because at this point I wanted to help my family business. As any good punk entrepreneur kid, you think everything your dad is doing is wrong, right? And I see all these things that I can fix, but I wasn't interested in the subject matter, right? I was already thinking about what was I gonna do when I converted this whole thing into a baseball card store, right? <laughs> I started learning about wine. No 16-year-old should know as much about the Loire Valley in France as I did. I was so ridiculously confident and I so knew what was gonna happen that I realized that high school was the last vacation I was ever gonna have. And you're listening to Gary Vee, his story in his own words, serial entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, a guru on all things web and digital. More on his story, more from him, Gary Vee's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. Gary V's story continues here. Again, an American serial entrepreneur, four-time New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and internationally recognized internet guru and personality. He was not your average student, Gary V, and he struggled with school as he tried to grow his father's wine business. Somewhere around fifth grade, I realized I did not give a crap about Saturn. Algebra wasn't gonna do it for me. And so what I did was I deployed and honed my skills at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So by the time I fell in love with the notion of what that was gonna be, that was already ingrained in me. I thought I was gonna open up 8,000 wine and liquor stores, the Toys R Us of wine, sell the franchise, buy the New York Jets. Here's where the story starts getting relevant to you. I go to college. I'm playing Madden 95 in my dorm room. Dominating, by the way. <laughs> my friend runs in and he says, you have to come and see this. I finish my game, I walk into a room and there are eight 18-year-old dudes hanging around a computer. Now, for a lot of the youngsters in this room, you don't recall this, I was 18 years old at this point and probably spent less than three hours on a computer in my life. By being a DNF student and getting an F in computer class, I was able to stay off the computer, right? <laughs> I get on there. In eight minutes, somehow, I end up on a message bulletin board in AOL that's selling and buying baseball cards. In 14 minutes, I make a transaction. Within 20 minutes of ever being on the internet, I said, my God, I don't need to open up 8,000 stores. I'm gonna do something on this. 18 months later, I launched one of the first three e-commerce wine businesses in America called winelibrary.com. Don't clap. Here's why. The first 18 months that that site ran, that site cost $15,000 to build. We were a small family business. $15,000 to build that website. In the first 18 months, because I was still at school, I wasn't fully back at the liquor store, in the first 18 months on that $15,000 investment in 1996, seven, eight internet world, where most people still weren't on it, that $15,000 investment brought back $480 in sales. I don't know how many of you have a Soviet father, but Sasha Vaynerchuk was not happy with the ROI. This, this failure taught Gary a very important lesson about success. It was one of the more important lessons I've learned in business. The disproportional reason so many people in here will not win. Let's just get right to the chase. It's your lack of patience. For some unknown reason, when people go into ventures like this and other things, they somehow miraculously think it's gonna happen in five minutes. That you're the one person in the world, whatever you guys call your big club and put posters of each other up on, you think you're gonna be in that circle in five minutes for some reason, because you're the most charismatic, you figured out some weird system, you've got it. And the lack of patience is what hurts so many people. And so by losing so much money in those first 18 months, I had walking into a 
system that I had to be patient, I had to build, I had to work. From 22 to 30 years old, for eight years, in my 20s, I worked 15 hours a day, seven days a week, in my dad's liquor store. Today, with all the things that have happened to me, I get emails on Facebook from friends I went to high school with, often starting with, Gary, you're so lucky. I reply to every single one of them, all of them, with the reply of an opening line first, Jan, great to see you again. You look great, kid's super cute. P.S. I am super not lucky. Let me remind you, Rick, remember when we graduated college and you went to the Jersey Shore every weekend and hooked up with chicks and drank beer? I worked. Rick. In those 15, 18 hours a day out of school, I grew my dad's business from a three to a $60 million business, which meant I was 27 years old running a $60 million business, and I was paying myself $54,000 a year. You know why? Because I'm patient. Because I don't need a cool watch. I don't need a fat whip. I want to build something. I want to build something. From there, Gary continued to build by using new online tools to deliver content. There was something called Google. I looked at it, I saw this new ad product where if you searched for a wine, you could buy the first result? That was insane to me. I thought that was incredible. And so I bought the word wine and many other words like Cabernet and Pinot Noir the day Google AdWords started. Uh, How many people here have done Google AdWords in their career? Very nice. I owned the word wine the day Google AdWords started for five cents a click for nine months before anybody bid me up. And that worked. And I kept going and then my career took a massive change that I think will really impact a lot of people in this room if you follow this blueprint. There was a new website out that I was intrigued by. It was called YouTube. Everybody in the world was really not ready for online video, it hadn't happened yet. I've been wanting to like play in that space. I finally saw this site, YouTube, it was a couple months old. There was not a single video on YouTube that had a million views yet, period, on the whole platform. So seven months after YouTube came out, I started Wine Library TV, which was the first time I was doing content, not advertising. And the premise of the show was very simple. I sat at my desk with four bottles of wine and I had somebody videotape me drinking it for 20 straight minutes. (laughs) It was a great gig. And somehow a year later, hundreds of thousands of people watched me taste wine and give my thoughts. And what I did was I understood the wine business at that point. I understood my craft at that point. How many people here have a friend or relative that is fairly into wine? Raise your hands. So you guys know exactly what I know, which is the second somebody gets just a little bit of wine knowledge, you're drinking the wrong year, shut up. So what I did was by knowing that, I talked to people about wine instead of down to them. I talked about wine the way it actually smelled and tasted to me instead of the words on the back of the label. I called wines, you know, this reminds me of what a racquetball smells like when you first open the container or If I ate an entire pack of Big League Chew and swallowed it, this is what this tastes like. Or when it didn't go as well, if you were at a farm and a sheep farted in your face, this is what (laughs) this wine tastes like. 
Gary Vee then goes on to talk about the importance of what we call social media regarding attention, sales, and connecting with people. Everybody was talking about this app called Twitter. Everybody thought it was the stupidest thing of all time because who cares if you're walking the dog or eating pizza? I thought it was the future of email. I invested in Twitter. I made a video about it. Facebook saw it. I spoke at Facebook. I became friends with Zucks. I invested in Facebook. And then I saw a bunch of high school kids playing on Tumblr and I invested in Tumblr. I'm rich. I run a company right now called VaynerMedia. We're a $100 million a year strategy and creative and media agency. We have Under Armour and Toyota and Dove and Budweiser and the biggest brands in the world paying us to sell stuff on the internet. Let's start with a couple things that you need to know. Social media, it doesn't exist. It's a slang term. Social media is the slang term for the current state of the internet. If you are sitting in this crowd and still not devoted to these platforms, you will lose. Because the only thing that people care about in marketing and sales that are smart and successful is attention. And if you don't realize that everybody's attention is now in their phone, you are not paying attention to society. How many people in this room, in this arena, (laughs) how many people in this arena are always within arm's reach of their cell phone in every 24 hour window? Over 50% of everybody's time in the world on a phone is spent on a social network. This is where we live. And for you to sit in this audience and disrespect Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest, all these platforms is an insane thing. When I had 50,000 followers on Twitter, I could get more people to do something than I can today at 1.3 million followers on Twitter. It's why when you roll up at me and go, I have this many followers, I don't give a crap. It doesn't matter how many followers you have, it matters how many followers you have that care. You're not paying the bills with 100,000 Instagram followers that you bought on eBay, jerk. Yep. Exactly right. You're listening to Gary V. His story, by the way, and his advice. If you're in marketing or anything like it or advertising, that last piece is for you. Gary V's story here on Our American Stories. stories and one of the new additions to our show is our villages stories and we've been sending our recent college graduate faith to this retirement community famous retirement community perhaps the biggest in the country and we sent her down there just to make friends have a good time and bring us back some stories and by the way the villages is home and this is in florida by the way about an hour north of orlando and you've heard about it i'm sure But the Villages has over 157,000 residents, 2,200 clubs, that's activity and organization clubs, that kind, and then 600 holes of golf. And there's live music on the squares 
all three of the squares every single night but for big old storms. And in her recent trip, Faith was able to attend an honor flight. The Honor Flight Network is a nonprofit organization created to recognize and celebrate America's veterans. Our donations help to bring the World War II vets to D.C. to visit and reflect at the monuments to their lives. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, an estimated 640 World War II veterans die each day. Our time to express our thanks to these brave men and women is running out. But sadly, some of these veterans are either too old or too sick to make that plane trip. So sometimes the Honor Flight organization goes to where the veterans are. Faith was able to attend just such an event at the Villages. She brings us a story from one of these veterans. Jean Nupp is a World War II veteran, and a mere 92 years old, and an eventful 92 years it has been. After the Honor Flight, I had the opportunity of sitting down and talking with him for a little bit to ask him how his military career got started. Officer candidate, I, they come around one day and when I was in high school, this was in 1943, they said if you'd be interested in going into the Navy Air Corps, you come and take some tests. And I took tests and that's how I started. Going through, the Navy put me through college as part of this uh, training program, but I ended up in the regular Navy as an officer in the Navy. I served from 1943 to 1946. Probably the high point of my career, I was in Tokyo Bay when they signed the surrender agreement aboard the Missouri with MacArthur. And then shortly after that, I was on a ship that was sent to different parts of Japan and blow them up, all their military installations. And I spent three years and I came back and went back to college. Probably the most vivid, I would say being in Tokyo Bay when they signed the surrender agreement aboard the Missouri. How'd you feel? I I was glad it was over. (laughs) Say good, let's get out of here, go home. How old were you? Let's see, at that point, I was 19 or 20. When I started, we got out of high school and went, went into the service. Now, returning from World War II was a very different experience than coming home from war today. For today's young soldiers, many feel separated from civilian society because so few of their peers have served in uniform. It wasn't like that in Jean's day. Many young men were drafted, and among those who weren't, many volunteered. So everyone knew at least one service member. So Jean's homecoming was about as smooth as it can be coming back from a world war. Came out of the Navy, went back to college, because the Navy sent me to college for a year and a half. So I came back and finished the same college I went to. Well, I got out of the Navy in 46, and then I graduated in 48. I got a job right after I graduated with the Hoover Vacuum Cleaner Company. I was a field auditor. I traveled all over the country auditing the Hoover offices. So that's what I did for a few years. 
It's always interesting to ask what an older generation thinks of a current one. So I wanted to hear his thoughts on how things have changed. The country seemed more together rather than now. It seems kind of splintered and screwed up to me. Doesn't seem cohesive like it was during those days. Everybody was one game, one objective, and now it's kind of screwed up. How does that make you feel? I'm, uh, I, I'm glad I don't have much more to go with it. I'll tell you that. It was better in those days, really. But of all the differences that have occurred over time, Gene is most struck with how young people socialize. I mean, meeting people now, it's all computerized. See, in my day, you met at dances. You went to dances. You met girls at dances. That, that was it. Do you have any good stories from meeting girls at dances? I met my wife. Did you? How yeah. did that happen? We were in college. And they had this called, they used to have things called mixers. You'd go to the dance, there were the girls, there were the boys, and you danced and you mixed. And that's how it happened. And let's see, two years later after we met, three years we got married. And has she since passed? or? Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I've had bad luck with ladies. My wife died, then I... Then I came here, I joined the single club, met a lady there. We were kind of hooked up for about 12 years. Then she died. Oh, no. Do you think I'm hard on ladies? I I thought I was nice. Even though Gene has loved and lost, he certainly hasn't stopped. He goes on to describe his current love life. But... um, Life in the villages, I mean, well, was good. And now I'm in the home. The lady I was with, she passed away. But you know what? I met another lady. Did you really? I did. Yeah, how's that going? Going good. Yeah? Yeah. She's in the home with me. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that... that you guys worked. hang out? We do. What do you guys do? We go to dinner together. That's about the hanging out. And we sit on the porch. Our driver's licenses have expired. So they have a jitney, that jitney there, mm-hmm. the Mission Oaks. That's where I live. If we get enough time, they will, she will take us to the restaurant. Oh. <laughs> Look at you going yeah. on restaurant things. How old are you? I'm only 92. Sadly, our time together had to come to an end. I guess yeah. we're, we're ready to go back. Uh, yeah, you're, you're ready to load the bus. Oh, I'm okay. going to get loaded. One last question. Do you have any wisdom that you'd Got like it. to pass on? Follow your dream. The bus pulled up and I quickly gave Gene a hug goodbye. And then he left. Because far be it from me to keep him from his restaurant date with his current lady friend. And Faith, how did you come to meet this gentleman? So all the veterans, they were all in a line so everyone could go through and shake hands. And he was near the end of the line. And every woman that went through, he had to make sure that he they got a kiss from him. And I was thinking, oh, I know I need to talk to that guy. Yep. And that was it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you picked well. 
Thanks for the work, Faith. It sounds like a pretty good gig. I want to come with you the next time. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and the story of Gene Nupp. Fought bravely for this country during World War II, and it's so true. There aren't many men left. And here on Our American Stories, we make a point of talking about our soldiers a lot. Soldiers who fought in wars so far back that it was at the beginning of our country, the Revolutionary War, our hour on George Washington, our time spent on the Battle of Yorktown, the Civil War, straight up to the most current wars and the most recent Medal of Honor winners. This is Our American Stories. Fates report from the villages. More after these messages. our American stories and on our show we love to tell stories of songs the story of songs we like to call it we've done Gimme Shelter Jesus Take the Wheel Georgia on My Mind There Goes My Life and today we're telling the story of Over the Rainbow the song is originally sung by Judy Garland in the 1939 film The Wizard of Oz it's so familiar that a few of us well we couldn't imagine a world without it the music Well, it was written by Harold Arlen, a Jewish writer, a man who wrote over 500 songs in his career, some of the great American songs and songbook creators from Tin Pan Alley and the great Broadway era. The lyrics of this ballad were written by E.Y. Yip Harburg, whose parents were Jewish immigrants from Russia. Here is the lyricist Harburg himself talking about his writing, and singing the famous song. Let's take a listen. I belong to a special tribe of what used to be called troubadours. Sometimes they were called minstrels. Now we're called songwriters. Who were not ashamed of a thing called romance, emotion, humor, and especially the English language. We lived in a world that knew the difference between sentiment and sentimentality. We worked for, in our songs, a sort of a better world, a rainbow world. Now, my generation, unfortunately, never succeeded in creating that rainbow world, so we can't hand it down to you. But we could hand down our songs, which still hang on to hope, and laughter 
so that in times of confusion like these, when all the world is a hopeless jumble and the raindrops tumble all around, heaven opens a magic lane. When purple clouds darken up the skyway, there's a lovely highway to be found leading from your window pane to a spot behind the sun just a step beyond the rain somewhere over the rainbow way up high there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby somewhere over the rainbow skies are blue and the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops that's where you'll find me somewhere over the rainbow bluebirds fly birds fly over that rainbow why then, oh why can't I? If any little bird can fly beyond the rainbow, why, oh why can't I? And the song written during the Great Depression, well, its intent was to point to better times, a place without trouble or depression. It's a song of hope, in fact, it will be the hope of Judy Garland for years to come after her performance in The Wizard of Oz. The first recording of the song was on October 7, 1938, on the MGM sound stages. It became Garland's signature song. This song became the aching and longing of Judy's life. Harold Arlen said that Judy was the one who felt most deeply about the song. Garland once wrote in a letter to Arlen, quote, As for my feelings toward Over the Rainbow, it's become part of my life. It's so symbolic of all my dreams and wishes that I'm sure that's why people sometimes get tears in their eyes when they hear it. Judy is not the only one who felt deeply about the song. Judy's daughter, Liza Minnelli, tells a story of her heartfelt fan and how her mother handled the situation. Mama rarely, uh, and never around the kids, used profanity. But when she did use it, it was always funny, you know, and it always, like, well, we, what happened was we were in someplace crazy, like Lake Tahoe, and we went into the ladies' room. There was an old drunk lady in there, and it was just, you know, with <laughs> the sequin straps and one of those dames, and um, she said, oh, Judy, you're terrific. You're Judy, the rainbow, you got to always remember the rainbow. Then when she went into one of the stalls, the lady knocked on the door. She said, yes. She said, 
to never forget the rainbow. God, it's helped me through so many crises and religion. And when Mama came back, then she went up to her. The lady went up to Mama and said, I just wanted to say hello. And Mama looked at her and said, hi. Right? Which made me start to giggle. Now, and she's going on and on and on about the rainbow and about this and that and what a dear little girl and how this, this, uh, And as we're going out, she had on this incredible long feathered boa somebody had given her as a present, which was way too big for her because she was tiny, you know. She came up to here on me. And um, the last thing that this lady said again was, don't forget the rainbow, Judy. And Mama turned and <laughs> threw the boa around herself and she said, how can I forget the rainbow? I've got rainbows up my ass. And that's, well, you know, at a certain point, you can just sort of get sick of the hectoring, but look at how it moved people. The song is only two minutes and 43 seconds, but in its own way, it's timeless, leaving its stamp on history. The song won an Oscar in 1939 for Best Original Song. The Recording Industry Association of America and the National Endowment for the Arts crowned it number one on the list of songs of the century. In March 2017, Garland's original rendition of the song was added to the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally and historically significant. And the American Film Institute ranked the song the greatest movie song of all time. Not bad. Well, we're going to close out with a song as it appears in the film. And we're going to pick things up in this story of a song here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Judy Garland's signature song, a song in every American's heart, every kid, the kid inside, every adult. Let's take a listen to the great, the immortal, Judy Garland. You know what Miss Gosh says she was going to do to Toto? She says she now, was going to... Now, Dorothy, dear, stop imagining things. You always get yourself into a fret over nothing. Now, you just help us out today and find yourself a place where you won't get into any trouble. Some place where there isn't any trouble. Do you suppose there is such a place, Toto? There must be. It's not a place you can get to by a boat or a train. It's far, far away, behind the moon, beyond the rain. Oh, 
This is Our American Stories, the story of a song somewhere over the rainbow. If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, why, oh, why can't I? This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the, well, I guess it's called the theme or the soundtrack to Shark Tank, one of the shows we love covering here on Our American Stories. And someone asked us one day, why do you do Shark Tank? Well, I always love saying back to people, why not? But there's a story behind why we do Shark Tank, and I think there's a story behind why we focus on Judge Judy. And first of all, there are real stories on Shark Tank. I mean, what's beautiful about this show is that people come on, you know who they are, and then they pitch an idea, they tell a story about a product, and then these six very wealthy people who used to not be wealthy are going to decide whether they invest in this person who's aspiring to be like those very panelists, the Sharks, by ultimately growing their company. And they're asking both for the Sharks' capital and for the Sharks' knowledge. And so I think part of the reason we do this segment is because in the end, there are some serious things going on underneath the radar of Shark Tank. And that is, I think it's the, and we all think it's the epitome of the American dream. I mean, let me tell you what you don't see. You don't see any discrimination on Shark Tank. A surfer dude can walk in with flip-flops and he can be from who knows where. And if he's got a good idea, he's got the shark's attention. A young inner city kid can walk in. Bad idea? Damon John, who's African-American, is saying, hey, kid, you didn't work through it enough. Go home. And so this is what makes Shark Tank what I consider egalitarian. It's also aspirational. The people on this show don't apologize for wanting to be wealthy. They, they do, and Americans want to be wealthy. And the wealthy people on that stage used to not be wealthy. They are, and they don't apologize for their wealth. And by the way, what are they doing with their wealth? They're trying to make other people wealthy. By the way, this is the story of capitalism that is never told in colleges, in grade school. So we actually think it's a mini economics course, but it's a heck of a lot of fun. And so before we dig into why we really think it's fun, and that is the star-studded cast of Shark Tank and how different all these people are and from all different walks of life. And we're going to, over the next hour, walk you through the lives of Barbara Corcoran and Mark Cuban. Who were these people? How did they get to be who they were? But before we do that, we want to walk you through what we love about Shark Tank, some of the pitches. Let's talk about the silly ones first. This particular pitch combined two problems and one really weird solution. I'm a board-certified urologist, and I have a successful practice in South Florida. Many of my male patients have two things in common. Number one, well, they urinate a lot. And number two, <laughs> they love to play golf. And if you've been oh, on a golf no. course, I won't have to convince you that the trees are sparse and the bathrooms are almost non-existent. That's why my patients encourage me to design and produce the Club. Uh-oh. I can't wait. I see where this is going. This is a trademark patent pending product that functions as a self contained receptacle. Ew! 
Exactly. Now, the Sharks never really warmed up to this one and never really took the club by the hand, so to speak. But this guy was convinced he was on to the next revolutionary idea in golf and leisure sports and maybe even something for a fisherman, maybe a, a Europol down the road. Who knows? And next, we have a, a silly pitch. And well, let's just say this might just give Jackson Pollock a run for his money. There is an economy for stupid and I am overflowing with it. Now, with their universal appeal, my cat drawings are poised to be the next pet rock. I charge people $9.95 for my cat drawings. Nine thirty-two of that is, is profit. And let's just say that one went straight down the toilet. Um, no money, no takers. Into the litter box. Into the litter box that one went. But let's look at a good one. John and Alex Torrey have a new startup fashion brand, and they move back into their parents' house to share a room just to make it work. I'm Jonathan Torrey, and I'm his brother, Alex Torrey, and we live in Athens, Georgia. Okay, let's try the guacamole. We come from a super tight-knit Mexican family, so it's no surprise that we have a business together and the whole family pitches in. Can I help? We've developed a unique fashion brand called Umanf. We know that clothing is a really great way to express your creativity, and we want to build a fashion brand that has a really positive social impact. Pops, can you make sure we order some more ink? Jonathan and I put everything into Umano. We moved back home with our parents. We share a room like we did when we were seven years old. We did that willingly because we really believe that Umano has tremendous potential. And they're asking for $150,000 for 15% of their company. We're seeking $150,000 for 15% equity in our business. Umano is fashion for good. We design men's and women's elevated fashion basics with a personalized meaning to connect people to a bigger purpose. The awesome artwork you see here is curated from some of the most amazing up-and-coming artists. Kids! Sharks, meet Jessica. She drew the skull and wants to be a teacher. How old is she? She's seven. (laughs) Wearing Umano is a badge of pride, and it's a pledge. Because with every product you purchase, Umano will give a backpack full of school supplies to empower young creative minds. So always, what are the margins? What are the sales? The t-shirt is $48. Yes, Walk me how much you pay for it and then how much the gift bag mm-hmm. costs that goes back. Retail, $48. Okay. The cost of the product, $7. The backpack and school supplies is $4. So we load up total at 11 We have a 48% margin Plus, last year we sold $106,000. This year we're scheduled to close at $250,000. And Mr. Wonderful worried about whether this would violate child labor laws, but in the end, we got to the inner out. Robert? I see a lot of risk. I'm out. Thank you very Thank much. You. Yeah. It's embryonic. It's not me. I'm out. Thank you very Thank much. You. Robert and Mr. Wonderful were out. What about Lori, Damon, and Cuban? I'm going to give you 150000 but for 25%. I would have to offer the 150K for 33 and a third. Thank you very much for your offer. It's between Cuban and Lori or Damon. Who in the end gets the deal? Damon, we, we really thank you for your offer. We need to be able to protect some of that equity so that we can raise more money in the future. We would love to make a deal with Oh, So we have a deal? We, we have, have a deal. deal. Done. Awesome. I can't wait to see you in the skull. Oh, my God. I love it. I love it. Oh, my God. Through our journey, we've probably heard 100 no's to one yes. 100,000 no's. So... 
These yeses really help not only build our own confidence, but also the teams that we are on the right track. And that's what we love about Shark Tank. And when we come back, Barbara Corcoran, Lori Guineer, Mark Cuban, the whole staff, the whole cast, we're going to dig into their lives, how they got where they got. We're spending some time on Shark Tank here. Why we spend so much time on it, you'll soon find out. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue our story of why we do Shark Tank, why we spend time on it. And now you're going to find out why. You know, those sharks all started out with nothing and needed the help of other sharks, other investors, so they could grow wealth. And now they're the wealthy ones sitting in the leather chairs, and you just heard this Mexican family, these young guys moving back into their family's house to pitch these sharks so they could grow their business. What a beautiful story. That's everything you want to know about America. So let's look at the cast, because this cast is America. And it has a couple of Canadians on it. First up, Barbara Corcoran, because boy, what a life story she has. She was the second oldest of 10 kids and grew up in a lower middle class New Jersey town. Let's take a listen. So I grew up in a very little town named Edgewater, New Jersey, which if you were there in the town, it's right on the Hudson River. And we look at New York City skyline right from our house. My little bedroom with my five sisters, we all looked out the window and we saw New York City. We never went there, but we saw it. My mother raised her 10 children. She had six girls in the girls' room, four boys in the boys' room. The girls' room was pink, the boys' room was blue, and we had one bath in between. But miraculously, my mother and father produced every one of those children from their bedroom, which was the living room couch. So for romance. (laughs) They were devout Catholics. (laughs) I didn't even have to tell you that one, right? No, you didn't. And here she is talking about a moment and a man that changed her life. I was 23 working at the Fort Lee Diner. I was in charge of one whole counter, and another woman was in charge of the other counter. The night that Ramon Simone walked in, an accent, both words, Ramon Simone. I took one look at him walking in with his beautiful dark skin, his aviator shades. He had a real suit on. I had never seen a man in a suit, not in my neck of the woods. A press collar, a white press collar. I looked at him, and I knew I was going to be losing my virginity within a week. (laughs) And you know what? It was weird, because it wasn't like I was saving it for anybody. It's that nobody had ever asked me for it. But he walked in. Whoa! Ramon offered me a ride home. He had a big, fancy car with real leather seats. I'd never sat on leather before. I thought he had sprinkled them with talcum powder. I was sliding around. He gave me a ride home. I introduced him to my family. They hated him on sight. And all my mother said as we started dating is, I don't like this man. I can't imagine why a man 10 years older than you would be asking a young girl out. Well, within one short month, Ramon Simone announced that a good girl like me a smart girl like me should really be living in the big city, and he offered to pay for a week at the Barbizon Hotel for Women, which was a block away from Bloomingdale's in New York City. I couldn't believe I was going to New York City. I announced to my mother I was leaving. I broke her heart. My last memory of her was her crying and holding on to me, and I popped into Ramon's leather seats, 
And off we went to New York City. And by the way, if you remember when we did our hour on Frank Sinatra, the kid from Hoboken, New Jersey, which is right next to Edgewater, he could see New York City, but he didn't think he belonged there. And that stuck with Sinatra for a long time. Well, next comes a real big moment in Barbara Corcoran's life, a real hard breakup and a real tough loss. And then Ramon and I decided that we would start the real estate company. He said, you'd be great at real estate sales. I quit my job as a receptionist for a development company where I was answering the phone, Chifuni Brothers, Chifuni Brothers, Chifuni Brothers, a hundred million times a day. And he gave me the wonderful thousand dollars. He took 51% of the partnership. After all, he said he was the financing partner. I was a working partner. I took 49%. And so for the next seven years, we built a little rental company in New York City in a sublease space, and we had 14 rental agents. I was earning more money, not much more, but more money than I had been earning as a receptionist. I felt so successful. His two girls, pardon me, his three girls, I didn't know he had children for two years, but anyway, then he had three girls. They moved in with us. I was now living with him in sin, as my mother liked to tell her neighbors. She wouldn't talk to me until I got rid of the boyfriend. That took seven years, all right? All right. But I was dumping the pasta one night into the sink, and all of a sudden, Raymond Simone walks in, and he says, you know, Barbara, we have something serious to discuss. I'm going to marry your secretary. I'm like, Tina? She went from Tina, the wonderful secretary, I wouldn't even put a label on her. Okay? I just couldn't believe my ears or my eyes. I'm like, what? How's that possible? He said, take your time moving out. I took about a minute, <clears throat> grabbed a toothbrush, and walked out the door and moved in with my girlfriend, Kathy, who was living on East 79th Street in the studio, and she let me stay there until I got my feet back under me. I should say that for the first time in my life, I don't know what hit me. I guess that hit me. But I can't believe I managed it so badly. I felt like I was a nobody. I went from a somebody with a successful business to a nobody because I was turned out for a younger woman. Tina was five years younger than me. I had to admit she was prettier. She had real blonde hair. I was already highlighting. (laughs) I hated her for that. She was calm and pretty. I hated her. But I went to work every day. I wanted to fire Tina, but Ray reminded me he was the controlling partner. I couldn't do that. Tina moved into my desk in Ray's office where I used to sit, and I sat out with the salespeople. And every day I went in smiling like a puppet, but in my heart I was running around a broken heart and loss of confidence. I just thought to myself, my God, I was nothing before Ray found me. He picked me up, found me. He was my mentor. He gave me confidence. He gave me the money to start the business. Everything good that had changed my life all led to one place, which was Ramon Simone. And I thought, he's right, I'll never succeed without him. But I can't even remember what clicked in my head, maybe desperation, but one day, I just decided I'm not gonna do this anymore. And I walked in, and I said to Ramon Simone, you know what, I'm ending this business, and here's how we're gonna do it. We're gonna chop up the 14 salespeople like a football draw. You can pick the first person, I'll pick the second. We'll do it fair. If you wanna move out, you can move out. If you want me to move out, no problem. You wanna keep the phone number, no problem. Or I'll get a new phone number, whatever. You go first. And we went right down the line, and I would say within maybe six minutes, we ended a partnership. Boom! Like that. We had $37,000 in cash. He wrote me a check for half the $37,000, and as luck would have it, it was a real estate recession we were just about to dive into. And why was it great? Because commercial space wasn't leasing well. He was on 
the eighth floor where my old office was. I rented the identical space on the 11th floor above him. There's a little ego in that, I'm sorry to say. How needy was I? And by Monday, this was on a Thursday, by Monday, I moved my salespeople in because in those times you could rent black desks, rent phones, bang, we were in operation, and my seven salespeople moved in, and that was the birth of the corporate group. Right before I left Ramon Simone's office that day, or I should say Ray and Tina's office that day, and by the way, you know what his real name was? It wasn't even Ramon Simone. I found out from his mother, Vicky, his real name was Ray Simon, and he wasn't from the Basque country like he always told me. He was from 145th Street in Harlem. Go figure. <laughs> All righty. Well, anyway, so right before I left the office, that's when Ray gave me the gift of a lifetime when he said to the, me those words that reflected in my head for the rest of my life. It still gets me going. You'll never succeed without me. I'm telling you, I don't believe in negative motivation. I'm a positive person like my mother. But he really knew my number. If he had said, I know you're going to be amazing, I'm sure I wouldn't have stayed in business in the tough times. But it was that scolding tattoo in my heart, you'll never succeed without me, that every time I was near death, growing my business through the ups and downs of the real estate recession, being overextended, being over leveraged, owing money, blah, 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 that same phrase got me going again. He gave me an insurance policy for success by insulting me. Thank God he did. And this is why we're not big fans of totally insulating your children or anybody from harm. This actually ended up being Regrettably, the worst and best thing that ever happened to Barbara Corcoran. And life happens that way. And here's Barbara Corcoran talking about a bias she exhibits when picking out certain contestants. And it's a bias towards people who either faced hard times or started with nothing. I'm very biased. They have a much better shot at succeeding. Why? A lot of reasons. Uh, They're more desirous. They've never had the fancy vacation, the delicious new car, the uh, the private schools, the higher education in many instances, and they aspire to it. Uh, so um, they get more satisfaction out of climbing that ladder and getting to it. Um, and uh, they've uh, seen their parents struggle uh, through life to give them whatever they've given them. They're more appreciative. They don't take things for granted. And you know what else, uh, which I should have started with? They're totally free from expectation. <laughs> Do you know how how lucky I was to never for a second ever think, I wonder what my parents think of this. <laughs> All it was was just let's see how far I could go. Yeah. I had nothing to lose and nowhere to go but up. Do you know how freeing that is to take risks? So they're, they're not risk aversive and you strive harder. And there you have it, Barbara Corcoran, just one aspect, one star on this star-studded panel. So if you haven't watched Shark Tank, now you know why, but you ain't heard nothing yet. When we come back, Damon John's story, Mark Cuban's story, Robert Hershevik's story, and many more here on Our American Stories, the story of Shark Tank and why we cover it.
This is Our American Stories. We continue our story of why we like Shark Tank and why we spend time on Shark Tank. And it's because of all the stories on that set, the stories of the stars, the stories of all the people pitching their wares. And again, it's every walk of American life. And it's bankers and it's lawyers and it's surfer dudes and it's, it's black people and white people and straight people and gay people. But there's none of that. There's Republicans, there's Democrats, but you hear none of it. And it's one of the one places in America where people aren't pitching their ethnicity or their grievance. They're pitching their product. And you get no special treatment, no matter what your age, ethnicity, or anything else. The women don't get special treatment by the girl contestants. The boys don't get special treatment from the boys. Damon is tough on the black contestants. He is on the white ones. The whites are as tough on the white contestants as the black ones. It's just, well, it's what America is supposed to look like. A meritocracy. And it's wonderful. Let's talk about Mark Cuban. Since the age of 12, Mark has been a businessman selling garbage bags door to door. The seed was planted early on for what would eventually become long-term success. After graduating from Indiana University where he briefly owned the most popular bar in town, Mark moved to Dallas. After a dispute with an employer who wanted him to clean instead of closing an important sale, Mark created Microsolutions, a computer consulting service. He went on to later sell Microsolutions in 1990 to CompuServe. He's worth roughly $3.4 billion. Here's Mark Cuban reflecting on his early success. When I was about 12 years old, um, and I remember asking my dad to, um, I wanted new basketball shoes because I was a basketball junkie back then. He's like, well, your shoes work. If you want a new pair of tennis shoes, you have to go out there and get a job. And I'm like, Dad, I'm, I'm 12 years old. And it just so happens he was playing poker with his buddies. And one of his buddies was like, well, I got a job for you. I've got these garbage bags that we distribute. You can sell them door to door. I'm like, Okay. And it was when I was selling them and realizing that I liked to sell and that I could sell and that I recognized that selling was, was about providing a service and creating value for people that I knew that I, I would, I literally back then, I knew that I could always succeed. Um, I mean, I remember I was 16, I think, when I, I started a stamp company and started going to, to stamp shows and trade shows. and just working a little bit harder than other people and, and trading up from one stamp to the next. I remember one time I started with a quarter and bought a stamp and left with $50, thinking, hey, if I could do this, I could do anything. And, and it's not that everything worked. I failed a lot, but I never, ever felt like I, I wouldn't be able to work hard enough to succeed. I, I've always been passionate. Some people thought, you know, it's, a, it's more OCD than anything else, which I think is a, a great trait for an entrepreneur. Um, when I, you know, I mentioned the stamp business, I would stay up till three, four in the morning, even though I had to get up and go to school and read Lynn stamp news and Scott stamp journals and have them all memorized and, and use that to give myself an edge. Um, even when I was in college, um, I'd be in in the library reading business books and just looking for business biographies and just reading all I could about business. Um, when I had micro solutions and, you know, I started with no money. You know, I, I pull all-nighters in, in front of borrowed computers teaching myself software and, and how to program. Um, it, it's just I've always just really enjoyed just the, the competition of business. I think, you know, in, in the sports business, I'll talk to, to our players, <clears throat> and it'll be like, 
well, you guys compete for 48 minutes and you practice a couple hours and you work on your game independently a couple hours. But the ultimate sport is business because you have to compete with everybody. And you have to do a 24 by 7 by 365 days a year forever. And there's always somebody out there trying to kick your butt. There's always somebody who looks at your business and says, I can do that better. I have a better idea. And you're, you have to compete with that person. And all the while, you have to make your customers happy, your employees happy. It, it's, it's the competitive side of me that, and any entrepreneur that I think that, that has to drive you. And, and I think that carries over into the Mavericks. I, I want to win and, and I want to compete. And by the way, you see this all the time. When they turn down entrepreneurs, it's often because they have this great idea, but they haven't done the work. And particularly on the sales front, they haven't gotten the sales. And what I love when Mark Cuban instructs these people, he doesn't just kick them out of the tank with no money. He gives them advice, like go out there and get sales and come back. He calls those people, by the way, entrepreneurs. They want to be entrepreneurs, but they don't want to pay the price. They don't want to put in the work and the effort. By the way, his grandparents came to America with nothing but their name, Chabensky. They even lost that possession when the Russian Jewish family's name was changed at Ellis Island to a name Americans could more easily pronounce, Cuban. And by the way, his father was the son of an automobile upholsterer in a suburb of Pittsburgh. And he started thinking about being an entrepreneur when he was 12 and credits Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead for helping him formulate his philosophy of life. It was incredibly motivating to me, he told Forbes magazine. That book encouraged me to think as an individual, to take risks to reach my goals, and to take responsibility for my successes and my failures. And by the way, don't we wish that could be every kid, every American, having that philosophy of life? Would the country be better? And I think this is why we love Shark Tank. Let's listen to... Damon John's story, he spent his childhood in Queens, New York, raised with seven sisters and brothers by his single mom. In high school, he worked full-time as a part of a co-op program, which he credits with stoking his entrepreneurial spirit. After his high school graduation, he started a computer van service, but it was selling hats and clothing that would make Damon John his fortune. He got together with his friends. His mom mortgaged her house... And John started his own company. He held a full-time job at the local Red Lobster while doing all of this to make ends meet, working on the clothing business between shifts. That small business, FUBU, is now an apparel empire. He has a net worth of over $300 million. He was on with Rachel Ray and his mom to talk about an experience and experiences and lessons his mom, that single mom, taught. Her son. Let's take a my listen. My life is a, is a series of beautiful women. It started with my mother. I have three daughters, you know, a great fiance. So, so I'm, I'm a product of beautiful girls, women. good girls, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, kind of son, what kind of son did you have here? What was he like growing up? Oh, Damon was a little mischievous. <laughs> and he was always figuring out ways he could make money. He was always thinking outside the box, Legitimate ways right? he could make money. And Legitimate he, ways he can make money. <laughs> That's a very important word. Man, it was that hard? <laughs> uh, plus, he was very responsible, very responsible, and always knew how to handle money. 
I, I love that, that in an early age, you understood the value of a dollar. I didn't have much of it. That's um, right. So, Can't you know, we had, we had to make it stretch. And I would, I, it would be an example of my mother. My mother would show me how, to, how I would learn by her examples. We didn't have much, and I would watch her do whatever she could. Work and I love jobs. how you talk about your quality of life. You never yeah. felt suffered, even though you were not financially, uh, you know, doing super well. It never felt like that at home. You always felt special. And I always felt like special. You, you know, was I, growing up now, knowing I was dyslexic and knowing that we were going through challenging times, but she would make me feel so loved and like there was nothing in the world that could stop whatever That's I was right. doing uh, as long as I listened to her. Uh, and then, uh, <laughs> you know, she sent me to a different city or a different place every single summer to widen my understanding Your of horizons, the world. Yeah. I went to Hawaii, right, uh, for one year. But think about it. She saved up for three years. It cost $100. I was on a 19 connecting flight wow. to Hawaii. <laughs> and I stayed with a friend of hers. But I went to Hawaii. And you got to see the world. Yeah. Do you think that's what's the greatest lesson, if you, if you had to pick, what's the greatest lesson or, or motto or, or the essence of what your mom taught you? Uh, that I was always responsible for my actions. Um, yes. And she, listen, I got left back in seventh grade. The teacher said, hey, you can pass, because they knew I was acting up. My mother said, no, guarantee that he's going to be left back. Then she went and got a third job so that a babysitter could watch me so I <laughs> stay in the house and be punished the entire summer because I had to be responsible for my actions. That's a tough lesson, but see how well was, it, it Was it took. harder on you, wasn't it, Ma? It was hard on me because when you punish your child, you punish yourself. Yourself, yeah. Personal responsibility, hard work, sounds like America to me. When we come back, more on this all-American show, Shark Tank, after these messages. our American stories, our final segment in our hour-long celebration of Shark Tank, which is just all American entertainment. And by the way, what we love is that the contestants are unapologetic about their ambitions, which is what makes Shark Tank so much fun. In an age when being wealthy merits an apology or worse, is a social stigma, this show could even be called countercultural because it celebrates the pursuit and the creation of wealth. A crazy idea. And by the way, what makes it addictive is that the self-made millionaires and billionaires we're profiling and sitting on that panel are no different than the contestants pitching them. Because only 10, 20, or 30 years ago, they were those very same people. They get it. Pitching their businesses to rich investors, struggling to acquire capital, struggling to acquire knowledge. And that's what's just so good about this show. Let's look at another one of the sharks, Lori Grenier. She started with one idea and turned it into a multi-million dollar international brand. She's now regarded as one of the most prolific inventors of retail products, having created over 500 and holds 120 U.S. and international patents. She is a Shark Tank three-time Emmy Award winner, and here she is talking about how she got her start. Many of you know me from Shark Tank, maybe. Some of you know me from QVC. So many of you will wonder, well, how did she get there? How did she create 500 products? How did she get 120 patents? Well, the answer is actually kind of simple. 
I had a great idea. I had no schooling in business. I had no entrepreneurship class or MBA. I just thought of one great idea. And then I had the passion and the drive to bring it to life. And the key words there, well, at least for us, no MBA. She had an idea, and the word she used was drive. And it takes a lot of drive. And again, another one of our themes here on the show, Entitlement Society, you know, raising our kids with too much, taking away their drive and their curiosity, by the way. Uh, We had a terrific segment the other day and a terrific story uh, in which we had the great Wayne Gretzky talking about hockey when he was young and how they just went out on 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 the ice and played. And they were curious and they messed around and there were no parents driving Wayne Gretzky around in hockey leagues all over the place. And he said he learned all the magic and everything just playing a lot with the friends nearby and having fun on the ice. And so a lot of these themes we come back to again and again. Let's talk about another character, and this one's a great one. Robert Hershevik, born in Croatia. He fled to communist Yugoslavia with his family when he was eight, settling in Toronto. There the family lived in a friend's basement for 18 months. And by the way, you're going to hear a lot more of this story. You're getting a flavor for it already, aren't you? Again, all these contestants start with nothing. All of the sharks in the end started with nothing too. Let's hear Robert and his life story. I was born in Croatia, which was a communist country when I was there called Yugoslavia. We had dirt floors and hay and no running water for a long time, but it never seemed bad because I was a little kid, my grandmother, lots of family, dogs, cats, horses. You never know the situation you grow up in until you compare it to something else. Yugoslavia was a great country if you were part of the Communist Party. My dad was very anti-communist and would say all kinds of bad things about communism. And he got thrown in jail 22 times. And the last time he got thrown in, he was told, if you come back, you will never return. He packed a suitcase, grabbed my mom and me, and he crossed the border to Italy, got on a boat, and came to Canada. In Yugoslavia, my dad was such a happy guy. He was a manager, and he was pretty up there. He was well-respected for what he did. And then he comes to Canada, and he's sweeping floors in the factory. He was never the same. I think I'm like every other kid. You never appreciate your parents um, until they're gone. And I just think how hard he worked to give me that opportunity. And I just feel such a need to justify that sacrifice. I had lots of dreams when I was growing up. I wanted to be a detective, a vet, a race car driver. I was so unfocused. My best friend went for this interview at a computer company. And I'm thinking, computers, who cares? Boring. Until he says, the starting salary is $30,000. I'm like, what? And he says, well, I didn't get the job. Here's the guy's number. Call him. That's how I got started in the computer business. The Herjavec Group is one of the world's largest cybersecurity companies. I'm really passionate about it because because it feels like we do good. I really think the world is changing. The internet has a lot of good, but has a lot of potential bad. And by protecting companies, we're making the world a safer place. I think what makes me different than the other sharks is I'm an actual immigrant. I actually came here on a boat. That shapes a lot of how I think and who I am. 
people think today, oh, I can't get ahead, it's really hard. Yeah, damn right, it's really hard, and it should be hard. Entrepreneurship is the great equalizer. It's not about who your parents are, it's not about your color, it's not about your sex, it's not about your religion. You know, business doesn't really care. Business only cares about the value that you add. Indeed, it only cares about the value that you add. And by the way, what a story here. He was in his 20s and between jobs when a college roommate, as you just heard him talk about, told him about IBM mainframes and emulation boards. But here's what he didn't say. He was underqualified for that position, but talked his way into the role by offering to work for free for the first six months. While working for free, He did what Corcoran did. He waited tables at local restaurants. He ended up becoming a general manager of that computer company, left it to start his own business from the basement of his home, ended up selling his first business to AT&T for over $100 million. But he worked for free for six months at the company, and the company taught him what he needed to learn because he didn't know anything about computers, and that would be called an apprenticeship, folks. By the way, that's almost illegal right now in America. You got to go to some college and spend money. He didn't spend money. He worked for free. And then he had a part-time job. And some of this common sense stuff, I think, is going to start creeping back into this great country as we overemphasize pushing kids into college, saddling up with debt and no real skills, particularly grit, particularly just toughing it out. We're not giving them those skill sets. Last but not least, everyone's favorite character, love him or hate him. You either love him or you love to hate him. But the show is not the same without him. And that is, of course, Mr. Wonderful. How did Kevin O'Leary become Mr. Wonderful? Well, it started in, if you can believe it, Canada again. He was born in Montreal to an Irish father and a Lebanese mother. O'Leary's father died when he was young, and it was his stepfather and mother who shaped a lot of his life. His mom saved a third of each paycheck, putting the funds into a large-cap dividend-yielding stock and bond fund. Nobody knew how good of an investor she was until she died. But suffice it to say... Her son was impressed. But back when O'Leary was a kid, he seemed more into guitars than making money or building empires. All of that changed thanks to one job. I remember my very first job. It was at a place called Magoo Ice Cream Parlor in Ottawa, Canada. And it was incredibly traumatic for me. And it taught me a lesson that I've never forgotten. It ruled my life in business from that day on. It was my second day working there. And the owner had hired me to scoop ice cream. I was finishing work one day, and she said to me, get down on your knees and scrape the gum off the floor. And she looked at me like a witch. And I said, no. And she said, you're fired. Get out of my ice cream store. I didn't even know what fired meant. But within minutes, I was on my bicycle on my way home in utter shame, in shock that she had that kind of control over my life. It was stunning and powerful. I have never, ever in my life worked for someone again, ever. No one has ever had control over me, ever, and never will. I can't believe I'm so emotional. (laughs) And look what shapes our lives. Sometimes hardship or a bad experience changes everything. Here's O'Leary's stepfather, George Kenwady, and then O'Leary himself, taking us back to the start of the business that would eventually make O'Leary rich. Kevin always went when other people were afraid to tread. So he started his business from nothing. I mean, he had one product. He had two telephones in a one little small place in Toronto. By the way, even though his nickname is Mr. Wonderful, as a comment on his not-quite-warm-and-fuzzy demeanor, O'Leary 
is a team player. And by the way, what we love most about Shark Tank, I think, is what it teaches about capital. Because the Sharks aren't just giving away their money. What we will see over and over again with the contestants is they want the right shark, the shark with the right knowledge. And in the end, that's what capital is. Capital is knowledge. And this is why in the end, we rarely get political on this show, and it isn't really political, but it's why socialism doesn't work. It doesn't create great knowledge pools. The government's on top of everything. There's no competition. There's no accidents. There's no stumbling. There's no yearning. There's no drive. There's no personal responsibility. There's no risk-taking. All the wonderful words you heard. And that's what makes Shark Tank so appealing. It's not overtly political. It's not. But in a way, it's deeply political. About individual freedom and risk-taking and personal responsibility. That's why this show is such a big hit. It's aspirational and it's inspirational and it's egalitarian too. And the star of the show is the dream, the American dream. Let's face it, and capitalism itself. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The story behind why we spend so much time on Shark Tank. Well, our American Dreamers segment should give it a, uh, give it a clue. We spend a lot of time on the American dream. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. We'll be right back. 